Welcome, everybody. Welcome to you online. We're really glad to have you with us. Homer, Glenn, New Lenox, Orland, good, good to have you. It's really important to know where to look for the stuff that you need, right? I mean, it's why we have the Bible. It's why we're doing this series. It's really important to know where to find the stuff you need. Guy went in the store and asked the clerk, where can I find the cheese? And the clerk looked at him, you know, and he says, are you a Packers fan? And the guy was offended. He was like, just because I asked for cheese, you think I'm a cheesehead? Let me ask you something. If I had asked for Italian sausage, would you have asked me if I was Italian? If I had asked you for a bratwurst, would you have assumed I was German? If I asked for a kosher hot dog, would you ask if I was Jewish? I mean, would you? And the clerk says, well, no. He said, if I asked for Irish whiskey, would you ask if I was Irish? Well, no, I probably wouldn't. And with deep indignation, the guy says, well, then why did you ask me if I'm a Packer fan just because I asked for cheese? And the clerk said, because this is Home Depot. (laughs) More Packer fans here than I thought. Okay, it's all right. We got to know where to look for what we're looking for. And, And so what we're doing is we're looking at the book of Acts because that's where the church got started. And in many ways, to those of us who do church work, it feels like we're kind of restarting everything after this pandemic and after everything is going on. So I wanted to go back and look at how they did things. This is how we do it back in the Bible, okay? So we talked last week about how you handle the stuff you know to do and then watch God's power show up. Chapter one was Jesus said, I'm leaving, I'm going back up, the Holy Spirit's going to come down upon you, and I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. But while they were waiting, they went ahead and chose the other apostle that they needed to replace Judas. In other words, they did the things they knew they needed to do to get ready for God. And then Peter gets the Holy Spirit, gets up to preach, and he starts preaching to the people about what they need to do for the Holy Spirit to show up. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you Will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day, okay? And so we talked about it, and we did not have 3,000 baptisms last weekend, but we did have 116 baptisms last weekend. Isn't that incredible? Um, Here's just some pictures of some of them that were going on. And uh, I just want you to know, if you want to do it, we still want to to help you with it. We want to do it with you. Um, This one somebody sent me. That's my grandson, Charlie, in the background. Um, Is he a chip off the old block or what? I mean, he's just watching the baptism and he's so excited. Uh, It was so fun to have him here. So the beginning of the church, you start a church with 3,000 brand new believers, right? I don't know if you know anything about church planting, but that would be a nightmare, Okay, when you start a church, you you have a core team usually. We planted a lot of churches around the world. You you want a core team, okay? And the Bible tells us in Acts 1 that there's about 120 people on the core team, okay? And then you want to have your first service, right? And and, and a lot of times you're going to want to do it around, uh, you know, Easter or Christmas or or maybe in September when people are ready to, to have something happen. So if you've got a core team of 120 people and you have a first service, and you have like 300 people or, or 400 or 500 people show up at a first service, it's unbelievable. I mean, that is like a huge win. But 
if you had 500 people show up or, or 400 people show up, you would know that a lot of those people, many of those people, are already pretty comfortable with the teachings of Jesus. They, they, you know, they might not follow him, but at least they knew what, they, what he taught, and they were comfortable with church, and they would know not to smoke pot in the church restroom after the service, which did happen here once before. It was even legal. And I love it when those people come in, and, and they don't really know, but you would assume that a lot of your people would know not to do that, right? But, but this is 3,000 people, and they just executed Jesus. And now they're trying to figure out how to follow the guy that they killed, okay? So that would be exciting and the biggest organizational hairball you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it, it, it gives me heart palpitations to even think about being Peter or one of the apostles on that day. So how did they handle it? Well, the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. The Holy Spirit is here now. And the believers were together and had everything in common. And selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay? So it's not just 3,000 people. It's like everybody's coming. The first church of Jerusalem. And it says that they attached themselves to some things. Some translations said devoted themselves. What did they attach themselves to? They attached themselves to the teaching of the apostles, which they didn't have the Bible yet, but the apostles knew what Jesus taught. So they were teaching that. And they attached themselves to one another. Okay? They devoted themselves to close relationships with one another, which we would call fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Okay, so both dimensions are happening in the early church, staying connected to Jesus, staying connected to each other. Sound familiar? What's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those things are, are, are completely important, and they have to both happen. What it means to be a Christian is to be connected with Jesus in relationship with him, and be connected to other Christians and be in relationship with them. So my easy question for you today is, are you in a real relationship with Jesus? Because we want to help you. And are you in a real relationship with other believers? Because we want to help you with that too. The Greek word was koinonia. Maybe you've heard that. It, it is a deep community. So permit me um, to put on my science hat for just a little bit and take you on a deep dive into why this is so important now after COVID. And why Zoom, we all realize, is not the same, right? Okay? And why Tesla and Apple and a lot of other large companies are saying, hey, you know what? We think you should come back to work here in the office. Are you paying attention to this? Because we need to be with each other. And what Apple and Elon and, and all of those people don't realize is what they're admitting is that we need koinonia, okay? 
So this has to do with the brain and neuropsychology and some things that we're only now learning about the brain. And God made the brain and God said it's not good for man to be alone. And this should explain why the pandemic has had disastrous results and effects on our entire world in isolation. Because what we know about the human brain is that a person develops through joyful attachment. Dr. Shore from UCLA framed that, that, that term, joyful attachment. In other words, it is someone who is glad to be with me. Okay, that's his definition of koinonia. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. Someone who is glad to be with me, someone who is, uh, that I'm the sparkle in someone's eye. Okay, that's how, he, that's how he set the whole thing up and how our brains work. And, and just for a little brain science, uh, I mean, what happens is the right side of your brain is the, is the part that processes the, the smells and the things that you see. And, and the thing about it is it clicks every six times a second, the right part of your brain is clicking, okay? The right part of your brain is processing things. So when you walk into grandma's house and you smell her roast chicken, it, it, it's being processed on the right side of your brain. Everything is processed on the right side of your brain first. And then behind your eyes, it transfers over to the left side of your brain. And the left side of the brain is where you do your thinking, your cognitive stuff, okay? And the problem for us, so the left side is the, is the conscious thought, it's speech, strategies, problem-solving, logic. The right side is our identity and our emotional entunement and our joyful attachment. And again, it fires a lot faster than the left side. So someone who is glad to be with me, which means, according to Jim Wilder, who I've, written, I've read a bunch of his stuff this summer, that spiritual formation for us, trying to become like Jesus, is really important that that happens in the right side of our brain. But most churches do spiritual formation on the left side of our brain, what do we usually tell you? Well, you need to um, study the Bible and pray, right? And what is that? Th those are left side of the brain things. And when we all got isolated and six feet apart during COVID, you know, everybody, people were mad about the church shutting down and, you know, all that stuff. And was it a conspiracy and all that? I, I, I never thought it was. And we tried to be responsible with that because it was a pandemic. But you know what? As I look back, what hurt us more than not being able to meet together in the temple courts, <clears throat> as it were, was that we weren't able to meet in each other's homes and break bread and have communion. Because the apostles' teaching you can still get on a screen, but being the sparkle in someone's eye can't happen on pixels. It's just not the same thing. Oh, sure, I'd rather FaceTime with my grandkids than talk to them on the phone. But nothing substitutes having them in my arms. Do you see what's happened to us? Okay. And here's the problem, okay? Joy substitutes start to creep in. And they can be normal things, according to Jim Wilder, pseudo-joys, okay? If we don't have the joy attachments of being together, pseudo-joys come in. Pseudo joys are like normal things like food or social media or shopping, okay? The more obvious pseudo joys are alcohol, drugs, sugar, porn. And low joy cultures, he says, will see an increase in the pseudo joy addictions. 
Hello, 2020, right? Making sense? But the good news is, as we increase our joy, it will naturally calm our cravings for the pseudo joys. So building joy should be an integrated part of our lives. So what do you really need to know? No, koinonia, all the way back to the beginning. And guess what else they found? Joy and screen time are inversely proportional. When our eyes and face are staring at our phones, we are not engaging with the faces around us, and the joy drains out of our communities by depriving ourselves of each other's faces. Our need for face-to-face time is designed into our flesh and cannot be substituted with the screen. Our brains can distinguish between a real face and a face on a screen, even when we're babies, right? We get that. And our neurological... Have you ever, have you ever FaceTimed with a you know, kid and... And, and a little baby, and they're looking around behind the phone like, where's the rest of the body, okay? Our neurological circuits do not react to screens the same they do as live faces. Since we need facial joy, we need food, like we need food and oxygen, we are starving ourselves of relational nutrition. Check this. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May he make his... Face shine upon us. May the Lord lift his countenance upon us and give us peace. Isn't that crazy? Every one-sixth of a second, our right brain is trying to answer the question, who am I? How do my people act? And that only happens when we're actually together in a smaller group setting. Okay, that was deep. Two guys at a bar. You ready for this one? (laughs) One guy looks at the other and says, I can't help but think from listening to you that you might be from Ireland. And the other guy says, well, yes, I am. And the first guy says, well, so am I. Whereabouts in Ireland are you from? And the other guy says, I'm from Dublin. And the first guy says, sure, in Magoras, so am I. I can't believe it. Where did you live in Dublin? And the other guy says, a lovely little area it was. I was on McCleary Street in the old part of town. And the first guy says, faith and it's a small world, so did I. What school would you have been going to? And the other guy says, well, I went to St. Mary's, of course. And the first guy gets really excited. He said, and so did I. What year did you graduate? And the other guy says, well, I graduated in 1984. And the first guy says, the Lord must be smiling down upon us. I can hardly believe our good luck had winding up in the same bar tonight. Can you believe it? I graduated from St. Mary's in 1984, my own self. About this time, another guy walks in, sits at the end of the bar. The bartender walks over, shaking his head, rubbing a glass, and he says, going to be a long night. The Murphy twins are drunk again. ha, <laughs> ha. That's two good jokes today, I'm just telling you. If, if you don't have a twin, you got, I mean, do you know that? Some of you are twins or triplets or whatever, and you have that, that thing, right? It's like, I've got this thing. You are, you've got inborn koinonia with those people. I don't have a twin. If you don't have a twin, you need that. And I was thinking about this time of year, I've got a bunch of friends that are doing the college drop-off right now, right? Some of you are doing the dreaded 
college drop-off. And man, when we were doing the college drop-off, we certainly cared about, we have three daughters, and we certainly cared about the type of college, and we cared about the location, and we cared about the schedule, and we cared about the dorm room, you know, how many trips to Target can you possibly take, right? But the biggest thing we were concerned about was community. And I remember when we took Becca to college in California, and we sat with her, and her roommates at the cafe at dinner on Sunday night, you know, and the, so, so they move the freshmen in early, and then the upperclassmen are starting to come in, and we're having dinner on Sunday night, and we're watching the upperclassmen who had just come back, and you know, they're, you know what that's like, like they're coming back and they're like, hey, yeah, it's good to see you, and they're screaming, and they're happy to see each other, and Becca said, very intuitively, I can't wait to have that. We know, right? The Bible says, since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other, and each of us needs all the others. And, and, and if you need more proof, which I doubt if you do, but in the beginning, there was community. Listen to Genesis chapter 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is the very beginning. God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. Is God schizophrenic? No, he's not. Let us make man in our own image because God is plural. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I know the Trinity is too deep for any of us to understand. I have a doctorate in religion and I still couldn't explain it to you. Here's my point. The very essence of God is not singular. God was never alone, ever. He is in constant community, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And breaking up that community in any way would diminish the existence of God. And so from the very beginning of time, God existed in his own small group. And he said, let us make man in our own image. In other words, let's create a human who is like us. Meaning what? Meaning we're going to create humans that need to live in community or he won't be whole or complete. So God creates Adam, and he has him name all the animals, so he has him do that, and he, and, the, and, he, and he sees that all the animals have community. They come two by two, and why he didn't kill the mosquitoes, we'll never understand, but he saw community walking by, and he realized he was alone, and that's when the Bible says God looked down and said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a, a partner suitable for him. You think God made a mistake? No, I don't think so. I think God wanted Adam to understand, dude, you need community. You need koinonia. So look at the animals. They even have it, and you need it. And God formed Eve, and they formed the first community. And their first job, God said, be fruitful and multiply. Go out and make more community. So the first thing that was ever not good in this world was loneliness. And the epidemic of our time is loneliness. So both the relationship with God and the relationship with others is vital. And some people try to build relationships without God, and that's fine, but it's going to be empty. The problem is many Christians make the opposite thing. They try to build a relationship with Jesus without community. And it's also not going to work. You're missing out on half of what Jesus says is mandatory. Both of those are important. 
So here's the deal. I'm, I'm preaching to a bunch of people right now. It's, this is a large church. And you might assume, well, it's got to be harder to find relationships in a large church. But you know what? I've been in small churches, and it's hard to find relationships. You're going to have relationships based on what you decide to do, not the size of the bigger group. That's why we talk so much about groups around here. When you get to know people in a smaller group, then the church shrinks. It doesn't matter what the big size is. It doesn't matter which campus you're at. You're no longer trying to walk the walk by yourself. So if you're only here on the weekend, if you're only watching this, I want to challenge you to think about getting in with some other people, getting together on a regular basis with some other people. Because following Jesus is a journey, but too many Christians are walking it alone, and it was never meant to be that way. And the pandemic forced us to isolate and be six feet apart, and we desperately need to come back together again. And check this. What was the first thing Jesus did? When he started his ministry, he started a small group. He got 12 guys together. He said, hey, let's hang out. And they became a brotherhood and a fraternity. So if, if Jesus needed it as a part of being God, and if Jesus needed it as a part of being here on the earth, then it must be really that important. And that's why this verse that might confuse you sometimes says, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. We believe strongly in that at Parkview. Well, is Jesus not here if I'm by myself? Of course he is. Of course he lives inside of you. If you've accepted him, that's exactly where he is. But when we have community, it, it magnifies what God can do in our life. Listen to Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Don't stand alone. Someday trouble or heartbreak is going to come your way. In your hour of greatest need, you'll be so glad that you have a friend or two and so glad that you don't have to bear the trial or the tragedy all by yourself. God's point is that every person needs a family, a connection of people who know each other. Okay? So, uh, maybe a little random, but I was just having a cardinal conversation with some people uh, in our church. I'm a lifelong cardinal fan, okay? And, um, and, and, you know, the cardinals are hot right now. I know your Cub fans don't want to talk about this. We got Albert Pujols back. He went to California, like some people make that mistake, and now he comes back, and he's 42 years old, and he hit a grand slam this week, and he hit two home runs last night, and it's just this super cool thing if you're a Cardinal fan. And it reminded me that back in 08, I got to meet Albert, okay? This is a picture in 08, it's a long time ago with the goatees, um, me and my dad, who is a lifelong uh, Cardinal fan, because Braden Looper, who is at our new Linux campus, was a Cardinal at the time. He's got a ring from the Cardinals, and, and he got us into the dugout. It was Christian Family Day, and we were able to go and be there. Okay, that, that picture looks awesome, doesn't it? I need to tell you a little secret. Albert doesn't know me. Okay? Um, my face, and, and more importantly to me, my dad's face lit up when we got to be with Albert, but Albert was just going, okay, yeah, I'll take another picture. 
There's no relationship going on there. I, I know this blows your mind, but there's no relationship going on behind that picture. What you and I need is to have people that we're taking pictures with that their face lights up when they see me and my face lights up when I see them. And even if that's nothing more than a pickleball group where we're hanging out and we're just playing together, I need your face to light up six times a second. My brain is looking for somebody's face to light up and so is yours and that doesn't happen on a screen it doesn't happen if we're not together and we want to reach as many people as we can for Jesus and we worry as a large church that people might be overlooked but there's not really a whole lot of things we can do like there was not a whole lot of things they could do unless the people got involved and did it themselves let me do the math. Acts 1.15 says there's 120 people in the, in, the, in the launch group, right? Day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added on one day. Acts 2.47 says the believers were added daily. Acts 4.4 says there were 5,000 men in the church. If there's 5,000 men in church in most churches, that means there's 10,000 women, right? And there's 20,000 kids. Anywhere you've got all the, yeah, there's, so the church has grown to maybe 20 or 30,000 members at that point. And you're like, well, how did that work? Bob Russell said the early church exploded with growth because people love being together. When you get a group of people together who genuinely believe something and really enjoy each other, it's a contagious atmosphere. It's such a contagious atmosphere that you can't keep people away from it. People assume that smaller churches must have better fellowship and stronger relationships because everybody knows everybody. And that's probably true for a little while, but churches that genuinely love one another don't stay small very long. That's what happened in the early church. I mean, it, it stayed small until the Holy Spirit showed up. Acts 5.14 said the people kept being added. Acts 5.28 said they filled all of Jerusalem. Acts 6.1 says the number of disciples was rapidly increasing. And you get all the way over to Acts 21, and it's 25 years into the church, and there's this little passage that, that is a Greek word that means tens of thousands of people were in the first church there in Jerusalem. Scholars estimate that maybe as many as 100,000 people were a part of this church. And there were only 200,000 people in Jerusalem. So half of the city was going to Parkview Church Jerusalem. Okay? <laughs> no, no, seriously, I've been to Israel many times. I'm going again over Halloween. You can still go if you want. I found this last time I was there. I was just digging around in Jerusalem and there it was. Okay? <laughs> So, so if the church grew that fast from 120 to 100,000 in 25 years, the question you would ask if you're me is, one, where did they put them all, and two, how did they care for them? And the book of Acts tells us very plainly, this is Acts 5, but you heard it in Acts 2 already. They met day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. So they had large group meetings, celebrations, and they had small group right brain community from house to house. 
And what happened in Jerusalem became a prototype for everybody else. Paul wrote to the church in Rome and said, greet the church that meets in their home. He wrote to the church in Corinth and said, the church that meets in their house. He wrote to Colossae and said, to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. That was the model, right? That's how it went. They met in a large group on Sunday morning, and they met from house to house during the week. And it was a pattern throughout Scripture. Again, what are we doing? This is how we do it. Where do you find the cheese? You find it in here. How are we going to do this? House to house in small groups. And by the time we get over to Hebrews, some of them were already like getting away from God and getting away from this pattern. And they were, you know, I don't know, maybe there was a pandemic, and they were forced to be six feet apart and not be with each other anymore. And the the writer of Hebrews says, listen, you guys, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Okay. Hang on to it. Desperately. What I want to tell you, every one of you hold on to the hope that we profess because he who promised is faithful. And then he goes on and he says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. He wants everybody to understand you need to have the, 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 the large group thing and you need to have people that can spur you, right? You get that, like spurring a horse or like a personal trainer or people that are going to help you. And here's the rest of the verse. Let us spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I said last week, if you didn't see it, I mean, I'm not one of those guys that's always looking for the you know, G, return of Jesus, but man, there's a lot of stuff that's pointing that way. If you see the day approaching, what should you do? You should encourage one another. You should spur one another on towards love and good deeds because we've got a whole world out there that needs to know about Jesus. I mean, this is how things go in society. We end up isolating ourselves, right? Think about ancient cities. What did they do? They had to isolate themselves. They had walls so that they wouldn't be invaded and, and everybody hunkered down in their, own, in their own spot. But that concept has crept into our personal lives as well. We used to live out on the farm or we lived in cities, right? And in the 1950s, we began to see the development of suburbs and the, and the, and the automobile made it possible to commute to work. And we became more isolated than we were before. And at first it was just the homes that went into the suburbs. But over time, the little suburban villages became self-contained and had entertainment and dining and shopping and eventually got a Dollar General and then maybe a Walmart, right? And then you're golden. And over time, even the suburbs haven't provided enough little isolation because houses, I mean, think about the houses in the older parts of Chicago, right? They were built right up on the front on the front of the road. I mean, think about Evergreen Park. Think about some of those areas, right? They're built right up on the road with a front porch on it. Why? So that you could sit out and watch your neighbors go by and have community. And then in the 60s and the 70s, the houses started moving farther back off the road and the front porches got smaller. And we started putting back porches on and decks on and the white picket fences were replaced with six foot high cedar fences. And where did that leave us? Now we hit a remote and we go into our garage and we go in and we go into our backyard and we don't have to see our neighbors. And where did that leave us? That left us isolated and without real community. And then we have this pandemic where we literally aren't allowed 
allowed to be with each other, and we're missing this huge part of how God designed us to be. So, so what are you going to do about it? I can't do it for you. What I want you to know is no matter where you are, even if you're watching online, we really want to help you find koinonia. We really want to help you find community. And at this church, we have rooted groups. We have financial peace groups. It's more important now with inflation. We have support groups for all kinds of different things. We have groups that meet around shared interests and are available on our group finder. Uh, the group finder thing um, my team came up with, it's kind of like Carvana for small groups, okay? All you got to do is go on there and go, what am I interested in? And you can connect with people over prayer or pickleball. You understand that? And it's all just a click away. And you would say, well, wait a minute. If I get together and I play pickleball with some other people, is that helping my spiritual formation? Yes. Have you been listening to me? Yes, because you need to light up somebody else's eyes and they need to light up yours. Even if you get a wiffle ball in your eye, you need to have that kind of a relationship. Even if you don't pray or say anything about Jesus, you need to have that. And we want to help you with it and help you find spiritual formation. So that's why you got this on your way in. Find your people. You can go to parkviewchurch.com groups. You can scan this. Uh, you can go to the group finder thing. You can text groups to 65649, and we will give you access to get in with other people. And if you're wondering what to do with kids, we've even got groups that meet at our campuses and offer affordable childcare on Thursday nights, okay? Our fall groups begin on September 8th, and we would love to get you connected because we all need people. And I just want to encourage you to be here next week, okay, because um, we're going to have family weekend next week. I'm going to take a break from Acts, and I want to talk about, um, about how we can help you as a family because our students are feeling this more deeply than anyone, right? We know suicide and, and self-harm is an epidemic with our students and our kids and parents. You need to get them in this koinonia thing. So don't miss next weekend, August 28th and 29th at New Lenox. Find out how they can have it. We're going to have a lot of student kids involvement. We'll be launching some things you're definitely going to want to know about. And I, I feel as passionately about that as I have this week and the week before. So I'm going to light myself on fire and watch it burn because I really want you to understand how messed up the world is because of what has happened and how we can solve it and how Jesus has the answer. And he always did <laughs> all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. Great story I read from World War II. Soldiers saw his lifelong friend. They, just, they were able to serve together in World War II, and he saw him get shot in a trench that was in the no-man's land. And the soldier asked the lieutenant if he could go out to no-man's land between the trenches and get his friend and bring him back. And the lieutenant said, yes, you can go, but I don't think it'll be worth it. Your friend is probably dead, and you may throw your own life away while you're at it. But the lieutenant's words didn't matter. The soldier went anyway. And miraculously, he reached his friend through the gunfire and hoisted him up on his shoulder and brought him back to their company's trench. And as the two of them tumbled into the trench together, the, 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 the lieutenant checked the other soldier and said, I told you that wouldn't be worth it. Your friend is dead, and look, you're wounded. 
And the man said, no, it was worth it, sir. Because when I got to him, he was still alive. And I had the satisfaction of hearing him say, Jim, I knew you'd come. You need that. I need that. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gems in my life, for my wife, for my family, how much my face lights up when I see them, and there's mine. I thank you for my, my staff, my elders, and my friends, lifelong friends and neighbors in this church, and their countenance shines upon me, and it means everything in the world to me. I thank you for my stinkling friends and my peers and the, and the people that live life with me that I get to be around not nearly enough but when I do it's picking right back up where we left off and that joyful attachment means everything in my formation with you I just want to pray that each of us that whether we're filling our lives with pseudo joys or not right now that we'll understand how deeply we need this that our brain is literally asking, who am I? And only identifies that in the identity of other people. I pray that you'll help us. May your face shine upon us. Lift your countenance upon us and give us peace. And help us be that for each other. In your name we pray.